some people are way more organized or yeah my studio is just a mess i'm super organized too like my work is incredibly meticulous and it's it's extremely organized in terms of like how you have to assemble it to be able to recreate it right and i can say more about that but but then like everything around it is totally chaotic yeah so it's this weird juxtaposition you know and it's also this weird juxtaposition of like all of my work kind of comes out of the idea of like spontaneous gesture and yet yeah. like the way it's evolved over the years what i end up making are these very meticulous very non-spontaneous very calculated assemblages that when they're done feel really spontaneous or organic and yet like the means to get them to that point is totally the opposite it's really weird strange like you know collision of these completely opposing things loading artists Audio inside, loading artists, audio inside, oh it's Oddcast, it's Oddcast, it's Oddcast, yeah, 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 listen by your easel, maybe you can grab a chair, or even take it with you like you ain't got no care, loading artists. Audio inside, loading artists, audio inside, so sit back and relax and grab your headphones too, adjust your volume, it's Oddcast, Philip J. Mellon welcomes you, so sit back, oh yeah, it's Oddcast, loading artists. Audio inside, loading artists, audio inside. From the 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 panning around the 360 that you gave me of your studio, um, you know, I mean, this I can imagine the planning stages and whether it's coming up with uh, sketches and mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, maquettes or what have you, and then uh, like you said at the end when it when it's together and it's on you know a wall, you can just like you can fe- you can feel the nature in it or like the organic quality or the right. the the fluid quality of them and and it's it's not a mess at all, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like it's just it's just like it's so like it makes a lot of sense, you know. And it, it's it's like for some reason I just see a lot of nature in what you do, and right. you know, yeah. And you know whether it's um, nature's patterns that that might that might happen mm-hmm. that you that you right. come across. Right. There's this new word. I need to find it. Like I know there's there are specific words for it, and Maybe a new word is like biophilic or biophilic, yeah. with, which is um, 
So there, like that might be a good word for it, which is a word that that I hasn't really been in my vocabulary, but needs to like enter into it now. But it's yeah. funny because you said use three to five words to describe your work in any fashion that you want. And right. the first word was organic, and the second word was fluid. So that's really funny because those are just the two words that you just said. And, yeah, yeah. Um, assembled, distilled, and the last word I use is kind of, um, it's sort of a broad word, but I think it's part of what I'm trying to get at, which is ontological. Well, ontology is this the study of being. So I feel like within my work, there's something that I'm trying to capture that's like a state. So, and and usually it's like, often it's a state of like, like the, the things I make are like, I make a lot of works that, for example, are falls. And it's not so much about a literal depiction of a, a waterfall, but it's more like the idea of falling and yeah. things that are falling. And what does that mean? Like what's falling or clustering? Like yeah. or what is spreading or what is what is unbound? The, those are sort of the kinds of verbs or ideas. So when I think about that, it, it's sort of about like a state of being, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally does. Yeah, I love that. Um, and I think you said you were saying something about falling, and uh, I tried to come up with a, a few words myself about your work. Yeah. Yeah, and one of them was weep. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and then also I have uh, written down, uh, like, they're growing before me. Uh-huh. Yeah. And also majestic and kinetic. Oh, that's to- totally great. I was trying to find a word for kinetic that what I was the word moving, which isn't a very elegant word. And the weird thing is that they're not moving. They're 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 full of motion, but yeah. they're completely frozen. Yeah, like and, static static yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Right, exactly. And so I love that. So kinetic and, and they're not literally kinetic ever. I mean sometimes if I use a lighter material it kind of might flutter a little bit with yeah. breath. But lately, um, as I've really, like, more lately making a lot of work out of laser-cut metal, and that's completely doesn't move at all. So it's a yeah. funny thing. It's a strange thing. and I, But I have been obsessed with capturing or imbuing a sense of movement, like, almost to... I was thinking about it. It's almost like seeking a hypnotic effect. It's like yeah. I want to induce that sense of trance state or hypnosis. So when you're looking at this thing, kind of like when you look at water, yeah. you can't stop looking at it. And you feel that it's a pattern, a replicated continuous movement unfolding in front of you and you can't stop looking at it and so yeah. i i think that that's what i try to get in my work and it 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 totally has to do with 
composition too. Like you can put an element in a certain place and you can get that effect where it's like your eye just can't stop moving or you yeah. could totally freeze and close it down. So I'm always trying to ride that edge of like achieving something that keeps the eye moving that induces maybe trance or hypnosis, like that state. Hello and welcome to Hotcast. Just want to take a moment and welcome Katie Stone, artist based out of Seattle. Here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. I've been thinking a lot about my process and how it's changed over the years, but one of the things that I've completely become dependent on is collage. And yeah. I can't, I the idea of now making a mark on a big piece of paper, for example, totally freezes me up. Where making a mark, knowing that I can cut it up and that I can layer it and I could disassemble it and I can remove and move it around. So it's so critical, whatever I do, I have to be able to change it. And I have to be able to shift and, and move it in a way that's not like, uh, like when you're painting, you're layering these layers on the surface and they all kind of, oftentimes they obliterate each other. And with collage, and certain types of material or with the way I work where it's parts, you're usually not obliterating. It's like, you know what I mean? It's like that the elements are evident and it's the accumulation of the elements. You see that it's, it's like all the parts are visible. You're not obscuring something. And I, yeah. I really love that sensibility. I really like parts that add up to something and that also aren't necessarily ever concealing. Do you think it uh, could be related to musical or, or like say um, a symphony or, you know, where you, you can hear each instrument and they're all in concert with one another? Oh, that's really, that's a really cool way of thinking about it. Yeah. Maybe it is like that and you can zone in on whatever aspect you want. I mean, it's, it's, you can do that with a painting too, of course, but it's just a different thing when it's not contained in a frame and when yeah. it's individual layers that are actually physically lay that are separate from each other. Right. Does that make sense? Like there's just my sense of painting for me was always this compression of layers. Like, yeah. Yeah. and and I like the physical separation of layers. So even yeah, I was when just I, gonna say, you know, oh, I'm sorry. go <laughs> ahead. No, yeah. Um, sorry for stepping on you there. Right? When I, it, I, I was going to say that they're they're filled with air, and like they that that might be kind of obvious because obviously there is a lot of air involved in your in your work, and also shadow, which I you know you list a lot in yeah. in the material <laughs> that you use, you know? right? And uh, yeah, so. So they are airy. There's, there is no like I think you use the word compression, mm -hmm. and they're, I mean, because they sit off the wall, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, like I said, the shadow and then the air itself. Um, there, it just has like a light feeling to it, which is interesting. I, I guess the the metal is like a, a light type of metal, but it's still metal. So no, it's when really I think metal, I don't. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> when I think metal, I don't think of air much. No, for sure. 
yeah. It's, I'm laughing because I, I really like, um, I like that you zoned in on lightness because lightness is also like, it's kind of that, that being thing about ontology. Well, what is lightness? Like, and yeah. so for something to have levity, it's like this physical lightness, space, air, and floating kind of feeling, like the, the lack of gravity. Oh, that's, cool. yeah. that's really interesting to me. It's like, so it's kind of funny that I make these things that are falling down, except that they don't really feel like there's gravity. They're still really light, kind of been suspended in this weird way. So, but what you were saying about the shadow and that kind of delicacy or breath or airiness, yeah, I think that's really important. And uh, so when I first started working with metal, it was really because of a kind of physical problem or challenge of a space that I was invited to create a site-specific piece for. And they wanted something that pr would project sculpturally into the space, but it couldn't be hung from the ceiling. And of course, all of the material I'd been working up to that point was completely floppy, like Duralar or paper, it's rolly, it doesn't stick out or project out. And um, I started thinking about, well, these these marks that I'm making are on clear plastic. And the only difference between the mark and on clear plastic is like, well, what would happen if, if I took the plastic away? The negative shape would become empty, and I actually just could physically cut out the mark. And cut it, I'd have to cut it out of a rigid material, and that rigid material could project out into space. So, so that's how I started using metal, and I started using steel originally, and steel is heavy. Even though it's really thin, it's actually heavy. And it's funny because then I, I, I didn't quite like it because of the heaviness of the material. And so then I started using aluminum. And aluminum is thicker, but it's physically lighter. And I was just immediately like, oh, my God, I love this. So I really actually like literally physically light materials, too. Right, right. And even though, like, so I, you can, like, yeah, the metal is completely um, not bendable or mutable in the same way paper it is. You know, it's like it's not permeable. There's something about permeability, like with light or delicate materials that I really like and transparency. Yeah. But with a metal, it's like I'm trying to maybe use it in a way that hopefully defies its staticness. And so I don't know if I actually, I don't know if I quite ever get there with it because it's definitely like, there's a huge difference between paper and metal, just like the presence of the material itself. Yeah. And I'm kind of still stuck in investigating that. And sometimes I wonder if the metal pieces have the amount of permeability that I want or that I'm really after. Like that's my kind of critical question about it in the back of my mind. But yet I can't now I, I really like that they're not floppy. I like that yeah. it's like, you know, I don't have to struggle against holding the piece in tension to make it flat, like it will stay flat, you know? 
Katie Stone goes on to talk about the challenges in working with assemblage and disassembling and reassembling for installation. When you do installation-based work or work that's put together in lots of little parts, part one of the things that I've had to figure out over the years is like, how do I not always have to be the only one that could ever put my work together? Yeah. You know, because like when you're, if you're dealing with a painting or a canvas, all those questions about your own marks and decisions at the point where it's done, it's this fixed object that, you know, doesn't have to get put back together again. Yeah. And then when you do assemblage, especially assemblage with lots of little tiny parts, there's always that, that question of like, oh, well, okay, I just put this amazing thing up. Now how do I get it back together again, assemble it again? You yeah, know? that must be a real challenge. That was well, I, here's what I used to think. I used to think that it was this organic thing that, oh, well, it was this way once, and then maybe the next time I put it up, it'll be a different way. Or maybe somebody else could put it up. And then I realized, actually, nobody else could put it up because not everybody has the same sensibility for motion that I do. You know, yeah. and I, I suddenly I realized in trying to ask that question of how you could rearrange something, I realized how specific everything was. And I realized, like, for example, I was talking a while ago about you have one piece and it can either close the movement off or it can open the movement up. And yeah. so I realized, like, each each decision about where everything falls is really important. And so in order to recreate it, like, Recreating it exactly as it is is really important, and then that's where I had to go into this whole crazy, meticulous, anal thing of numbering all the parts and yeah. figuring out how far off the wall they had to be, and like you know, making a template. And it's insane, it's so specific. When creating a work, do you use any sketches or preliminary work in the process? Well, it's funny, it's really dependent on the kind of work that I do because in my, what I would consider my most primary studio work where everything comes from, it's all generated by just stream of consciousness mark making. And once I start painting or generating a bunch of forms or shapes on a piece of Duralar or a piece of tracing paper, what I try to do is just make a whole bunch of it, and then that becomes the raw material. So everything I've ever done originates out of accumulated gesture, and then once I get a whole bunch, then I can arrange them. Yeah. And so that that sensibility really drives it. So in that part, there's not there isn't a lot of primary preliminary sketching. It's really like this idea of generating a batch of things that then you can work with. That becomes the raw material. So, oh, cool. and then, but then, like, what it's evolved into over the years, especially like when I do site specific work and I do a lot of commissions and a lot of weirdly, it's weird because many years ago I was only interested in temporary installation. 
And now I'm 180 degrees the opposite of that, where a lot of my work are permanent public artworks, you know? Yeah. like, And so that's so weird to have gotten completely on the other side of what I started out to do. Um, yeah. But I still try to subvert the whole idea of the permanence because it's still made of lots of little parts. <laughs> and somehow it's the accumulation of all those little parts that still makes it feel kind of temporary or mutable in a way that I'm yeah. always trying to get at. But like what I do now is like I'll get a little mark or a gesture and then I do a lot of work on the computer. I used to like generate the physical things and arrange them on the wall. Now what I do is I get the little parts and I arrange them on the computer screen. It's yeah. really the same thing. It's like moving stuff around, you know, right. and like having like 20 of something and you're just like boom, 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 layer it up, layer it up and move it around and adjust it and duplicate it and cut it apart. Only now what I do a lot of is I do it on with Illustrator and I do it on the computer. So it's like drawing and cutting on the computer instead of actually drawing and cutting. Um, that's for making big pieces. When I make little kind of collage, more drawing-based works, I still generate a whole bunch. And then I edit and cut them apart and select them and play with them. So it's still really the same. I, my, my most, my best works, I think, don't come out of preliminary sketching. It's like it comes out of this act of making and manipulating and kind of drawing and then from that stream of stuff selecting something and then taking that to sort of move further with. Next, Katie Stone talks a bit about scale, surface, and site condition. One of the things that I was playing around with a lot is surfaces and the way that, like, first of all, a lot of the works I do are really big, so like 65 feet long. So you actually have to move through them or in front of them to fully experience them. So... I did make a piece that was specifically has shiny surfaces and when you're moving in front of it, it shimmers. And if you yeah. stop, then it stops. So there's a little bit of that kinetic interaction that I am hoping to evoke when I make those really big immersive pieces and hopefully taking advantage of the sight conditions like light. And then at the same time, being super specific about how they're composed and how many parts they are and how much empty space there is to sort of try to create a feeling that the the entire wall, all entire plane of the building is being active. It's not just this singular thing that's fixed that's hanging on a wall. That's sort yeah. of what I'm always aiming for. I don't. Know, I, I know for sure I don't always get there, but. <laughs> You know, it's what I'm always aiming for. Next, Katie and I talk a bit about a specific piece titled Candy Sky. Candy Sky? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was referring to earlier, just this idea that, you know, like you you have a full view of it on the website, and it it appears to be 
like moving from the center yeah. to to the outside like both both the let's say i chopped it down the middle and there's or that's what i'm focusing on the middle then or the center and left to right like like as if it's cloud patterns you can't like necessarily see the same formation for more than a few moments you know and yet it, it's awesome. it, it it keeps coming to me like it keeps it's regenerating itself the minute I think it disappears, you know? That's so great. That's totally what I, that's what I'm trying to do always. I mean, without ever being able to articulate, it's always what I've wanted to try to do, which I, I also think of the idea of like continuous flow or this continuum. And in nature, really with everything all around us, there's always all of this stuff happening always, yeah. you know? And then you either tune into it or you don't, but it it keeps going. It's it, it's 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 this ongoing thing, and I really love the idea of making something that can evoke that or capture that, yeah. and try to put you in the state of a more distilled experience of that. And like with that candy sky, I. I played around with those shapes originated from a painted gesture. And then because of what you can do with Illustrator and the way you can manipulate things now digitally, I was also interested in the idea of feeling something that was morphing between organic and digitalized. Yeah. And so those shapes have that weird way that they're the same with abstraction throughout the centuries or at least throughout the last hundred years of how it's like a shape that's naturalistic, but then you start to distill it down to become more geometric. And so those shapes are these weird conglomerations of organic and then geometric. So the feeling that it's maybe pulling apart or transmute, transmuting in front of your eyes. Yeah. That's what I hope. Like that's what I'm trying. That's what I'm really interested in. So if that's doing that to you, it's really awesome because that's what I'm after, kind of, you know. The title of that piece, Candy Sky, comes from, um, well, it literally comes from, like, the way the sunset is, but it also comes from the, the song Candy Says by the Velvet Underground. And, oh, cool. Yeah, and it was just this funny little reference, and, you know, that line about um, – watch the bluebirds fly over my shoulder. And then that always makes me think about looking up at the sky. And yeah. that song has that kind of strange thing about change, things changing kind yeah. of, and then, and then standing still. And I, I feel like that's always part of, too, what I'm interested in is that weird thing between changing, changing, moving, and then wanting to capture it and wanting to freeze it, not wanting it to change. Next, we talk about painting, how it relates to Stone's work and its parts and even its whole. I like it because I feel like elements of painting, and when I say painting, um, I, I include a lot, almost anything, like sculpture. Oh, and, totally. I, I know, totally yeah. know what you mean, yeah. And I, I feel like some painting is maybe just for me and hopefully others too. Like, I don't want to speak for everyone, but they're like records of moments, I think. Yeah. And 
like when I think of a record too, that could be anything. Like you could write something down, and that's a record of a moment, or uh, even music. You know, like you're, you you find a riff or something on a guitar, and you like, oh, you record it, so it's a record of a moment. And you when you piece all these things together, whether it becomes a body of work or or just like a like a book, you know, uh, I I that's how I see most of painting for me anyway. There's a great. Have you read that essay by John Berger called Painting and Time? No. It's a really. It's on. It's on his. I think the name of the book is um, The Sense of Sight. It's okay. out of that book, and um, it's just really great. Actually, it, it's interesting for me because because I kind of think of myself as a painter. Yeah. Um, I mean, all all of my surfaces are about that painterly fluidity and surface, and um, and and at the same time, I'm not a painter because I'm not bound by the rectangle. I had yeah. to, like the rectangle just was a a burden for me. Like I, it was a it was like a a locked room, and so. Yeah. One of the things, though, that he that I think that he talks about, which I think is really interesting, is like it's how you look at, or he uses the word apprehend. How you apprehend a painting is that all the layers come together to create an experience that feels like a totality that was always like that compresses time. Yeah. And 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 I totally understand that what he means about looking at a painting and you take it in as if you don't immediately start to dissect the layers. You kind of like it kind of enters you as a whole. And right. and then for me like I wanted to split that up. That's why I use lots of parts so that it kind of doesn't ever occur to you like a complete whole because the physical parts are still visible. Kind of like how collage, it's like collage versus painting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's really interesting. And you know what else? There's a really great um, movie that was on Netflix. that's kind of about painting and time and um, the relationship between cubism and um, the birth of cinema it was on Netflix about a year ago, and okay. it's really fascinating. If you're interested in painting and time and the idea of time and an artwork and how time is, like, captured or not captured. And it was talking about the flickering light from early cinema and right. that experience of of objects being perceived by flickering light and then how that was completely informative of cubism and I'm just like oh my god I totally understand I totally see it now like when you look at early cinema and the way the objects move and their kind of jumpiness and then you look at a cubist painting and you're just like that's that's completely informative yeah, there's a flicker there too. Yeah, there's a flicker yeah. there completely, and it was yeah. great because nobody ever mentioned that when I was in art school, you know. I know, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's like, oh my god, that's completely, totally synonymous with film. It it was really, really interesting. So that's 
another recommendation, little recommendation. Wish I could remember the name of it. If you yeah, if you Google it. I'm sure you can Google anything, right? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. God. Just like some long key key phrase. <laughs> it's so easy now. Next, we return to the subject of scale in the work. How do you think scale affects the work, and do you work in varying sizes? Oh, I completely do, and I. it's like something I'm really passionate about and that I've always had in my work since I abandoned big rectangular paintings, yeah. which was in the early 90s. And um, when I stopped painting that way, there's something that I'm interested in I I really like the idea of monumentality, and I forgot the word that you used at the beginning, but you used an interesting word that relates to that. Is it majestic? Majestic, yeah. Oh. And so I sort of think of those as meaning the same thing. But I was kind of trying to take apart the idea that something had to be gigantic to have impact. Yeah. And so I started making really tiny things, and I sort of love the the physical experience of what it's like to look at something really small and be totally fixated on it and what kind of aura it can create or have on uh, effect it could have on you. And then synonymously, a gigantic work that makes you immediately aware of your own physical frame. And what I've always liked to do that's not as evident in when you look at a singular piece of mind, but, Whenever I have an exhibition or whether wherever whenever I have an opportunity to do an installation, for example, it always includes work of really big scale and really tiny scale. And I yeah. really love I also like the idea of the hierarchy of breaking down the hierarchy um that says that you can't put something gigantic next to something really small or, you know, that sort of thing. And so I probably get to do that less and less because I kind of make more singular objects now just as a part of being able to be a practicing artist and exhibit work or sell work. You don't really always get opportunities to do big installations but that's totally one of my mo's is always to have little things with big things because i love what they say to each other and i love what it involves for you to physically experience what do you spend most time doing looking making or thinking oh that yeah i thought that was a really cool question too because i used to spend when i wasn't doing as much work on the computer because I kind of define making as physically making, like physically interacting with materials. Um, I used to spend almost a lot of time making, and it would be like the whole thing of generating, cutting, arranging, disassembling, putting it back up, you know, that whole process. And then there was a lot of time spent looking, too, because... It's like once you arrange something, there's that, well, what am I after? What happens when I take this away? Um, and and I, I 
after I, I'm not, it's weird because I do a lot of disarranging now on the computer. So it's like, there's a certain materiality that's missing. So I'm yeah. like, am I looking or am I making like what, am, which one is it? Yeah. Yeah. I do I do the least and then thinking is like if thinking is calculating relating to looking then I say I I believe that I'm mostly looking but like I don't do a lot of intellectualizing you know yeah. like if thinking is conceptualizing and intellectualizing that's not what I do I do a lot of arranging and a lot of looking, you know. <laughs> so, and and I mean that's that's what arranging is making, kind of. Definitely more yeah, of those yeah. two. Yeah. Um, I feel like like I wonder what order they would go in. Do they? Do you? Are you that? Um, like, I think say, I do. I think that that it's like making is first, and then looking is second. But there's a really strong relationship between the making and the looking with my work where, like I said, I've realized how, because of now, since I've had to have assistance to help me make big pieces for a long time, and for example, just bringing another person into your studio and having them help you, and for example, if you had a whole bunch of parts and you said, well, put these up on the wall for me, and I'm kind of trying to capture this sense. I've only met like one or two people that could really start out from scratch, really inhabiting what I do. Like, and that was after they worked with me for a long time, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so it's like, I've only met a couple people that could really sort of get that thing that I'm after. So I guess what this is a long-winded way of saying, like, that thing about looking at something and seeing how it is and what's happening with it, for me, is also synonymous with putting it together and making it. And yeah. they're both really super interconnected. I remember, too, like, years ago, how I would have this favorite chair in my studio. Actually, it's so funny. A friend of mine has that chair now, and she's had it for longer than I have, but I still feel like it's my chair. <laughs> and that was like my studio chair. And I would just, sometimes I would like sit in that chair for two hours looking yeah. at that thing, trying to figure out like what it needed or what was happening with it, you know? So it's a yeah. funny relationship between um, those two things. I'm probably making, then looking, then more making, then more looking. Like yeah. you were asking about some of my favorite artists and um, somebody who I've just recently, within the last five years, figured out I shared so much in common with and owed so, such a debt to and was has not really been on the radar screen up until lately is Judy Pfaff. Oh, cool. Yeah, and it, it was it's like all through art school, nobody ever talked about Judy Pfaff when they right. should have been, you know. And right. all of a sudden, it just like hit me a few years ago. She's just so originated that way of um, immersive sculptural painting, really. Yeah. And that kind of came out, that sort of sensibility kind of grew out of a lot of women artists from the 70s, you know, that, and she's just one of them. So she's like one of those, one of my heroes for sure. 
Nice. <laughs> yeah. So going back further, some of my favorite artists, like I love Odilon Redon um, for that lightness. And his work has this strange floaty quality to it that I think is really interesting. So I've always really liked Redon. And um, I love Gustav Klimt's landscapes. Oh, cool. And um, Judy Pfaff, Anna Mendieta, Joan Mitchell, Pat Steer. Um, I really like Jessica Stockholder and Richard Tuttle. Oh, Richard Tuttle. I love him. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's like <laughs> everybody is trying to be Richard Tuttle. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And, and, and I love I, I really love that kind of work. Um, and um, Polly Applebaum, I really like her work a lot too. Um, but that thing about Richard Tuttle is like, I just don't, I can't articulate why it's so interesting. Yeah, I, I feel like he's just done so many, I mean, each piece, like it seems like, what? Like, how? <laughs> Like I just saw something the other day. I think it was a a, a Facebook friend, Kyle Staver. I, I'm probably butchering her name, but um, she posts like every day, like three. Say one will be a bathing woman, and then there's three by three different artists. Or and then oh, the, the yeah. one I'm yeah, the one I'm talking about. She posted three lying dogs by three different artists, and one of them was Richard Tuttle, and it looked like a piece of canvas just just sort of like rolled around in like a like a donut shape, you know. Yeah. And I looked at that and I thought, my God. <laughs> What? I can't I don't know what to say about it. I just I know. I know. It's so it's so it's so interesting. Oh, Anish Kapoor is another artist who I just love. Oh, cool. yeah. yeah. And nice. But yeah, that that thing about Richard Tuttle, I remember the first time I ever encountered his work. It was actually when I was in grad school. It was in 1993 and I found a book of his and it really challenged my my notion of aestheticness because of its um, materiality and yeah. its kind of casual um, humbleness. And yeah. it relate. I mean, it relates to Ava Hesse's work, that sort of, um, that sensibility too. And she's like, I, Ava Hesse is like on the, I, I think she's like on the top 10 list of probably so many artists of the last you know, 50 years in terms yeah. of uh, influence in that way. Um, so, so yeah. Oh, and, you know, Twombly, Cy Twombly. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's really great, too. I should look at my books. That, oh, and I also really love Chinese landscape painting. Oh, cool. And Hokusai. I just went to the Phillips Collection last year in DC for the first time yeah, I, and like John Marin and um Arthur Dove some of those people oh, that were dealing with um abstraction and nature and yeah. the relationship of nature to um experience and I just read this great um, article on hyperallergic um, that was, I was going to share that with you too. And they interviewed this artist I'd never heard of. His name's Charles Gabardien. Um, 
and he's a painter from LA and his work yeah. is he's in his 90s which oh, wow. is really awesome and so it was called cool. Beer with a Painter they talked to him and he made he said this amazing thing he was he was talking at what so the thing that I really loved and it's just a great article because it's so non-intellectualized it's not theoretical and it's a 90-year-old who's been making art for so long and one of the things he said was he's like talking about how weird it is to be an artist how how kind of strange it is and he's like there's no logical reason for doing these things being an artist is a strange way to live your life walking into a room every day having to do something and not knowing what to do. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's totally the weird crux of all of it, isn't it? Like, you're compelled (laughs) to do this thing, and part of this thing is, like, not knowing what you're doing, you know? And yet it's like every single shred of your being is, like, all about like doing this thing. Oh, well, one of the things I wanted to say, and I'm not like, I just wrote down the word rubbings, whether charcoal rubbings of, you know, like a tree bark or something. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of the works make me think of that a little bit. Yeah, that's really, that's super cool. It's so funny because it's, um, it's like, I don't, if I get really fixated on what tree bark actually really looks like, yeah, it yeah. doesn't interest me as much. But when I make something that evokes it or suggests it, that's yeah. where I'm really interested. So it's like a, that distillation of information and then like arranging it in a way that evokes this natural substance. But then if you actually go out and look at the actual tree bark, you're like, oh, wait. This isn't what it looks like at all, you know? So I'm really, like, in that space where anytime I get too obsessed with what it literally looks like, it kind of loses its magic for me. But when it's inhabiting that place where it's suggestive of without duplicating, that's where what I'm really after. And it's funny because you mentioned Candy Sky earlier. And when I was looking at Candy Sky... I started looking at it and I was like, wow, if that was vertically oriented, it would look like tree bark. And then oh, I yeah. made a big yeah. trunk. So it gave me this whole other idea to make a piece that was like a trunk. And um, and so I love that you picked up on that. It's really awesome. And it's sort of like the idea, too, of these familiar things that where it feels like really literally we overuse the word like, but the word like is appropriate because a lot of times when people look at my work, they'll say, oh, that's like a willow tree. They won't say definitively that's a willow tree. They'll say that it's like a willow tree, which I love that, that qualification because that means that it's sort of in this suggestive realm. And in a way, like a rubbing, a rubbing is an impression of yeah. And that's what, like, that's what I'm trying to, I think that's what what I'm trying to capture somehow is this idea of an impression, you know? 
Yeah. Or like somebody, um, that interviewer of in the make used the word nostalgia as it related to my work. And I was kind of taken aback for a minute because I'd never thought of my work in terms of nostalgia. And then I just tried it on and I was like, I got this whole new thing out of it. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I love having people say back what is evoked for them or what they think of, you know. Yeah. And the rubbings are also removed too. A rubbing is like a step removed. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also an interesting idea as it relates to kind of what I do because there's a little bit of a feeling of, don't you think there might be a little bit of a distance from some of these? Like when you look at them, it's like an impression of something. Yeah. And maybe it feels monumental because it also feels a little bit distant. I don't know. Does that? I Well, you say distant, and I – like one of them I feel like is a wave of some kind. Mm-hmm. And, but I don't feel like I'm going to get wet. Yeah. <laughs> I like watching it. Right. But I don't feel threatened by it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's cool. You know? Well, that's also interesting because there was for a while there's that whole thing about the sublime in art and yeah. things like that romantic notion, which I'm into. But I don't think that my work has that idea of terrible or cataclysm underneath it. Um, it's more like a hypnotic or calming in a way or serene sort of. Yeah, there is more. There's a lot of serene action, I think. I mean, because it's funny, there, there's motion everywhere and almost in every one. But like I said, you know, I'm not going to get wet. I'm not going to, you know, suffer any injuries. I'm not going to. Yeah. You know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe that's just my fear coming in. You know, like, ah, this piece is going to hurt me. Not yours, but. Um, yeah. But I can, I'm witnessing this thing as, you know, um, like as if I, I'm at Niagara Falls or something and that, that guardrail and the stone wall or what have you is keeping me from falling in, but you're you're still witnessing this great thing happening in front of you. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny because I a while like a while for a while I tried purposefully to insert that other energy into the work. Like somehow it would be justified if it was had this terrible feeling or sinister feeling underneath. <laughs> and yeah. it's just not really where it comes from. So Right. You know, so it doesn't now I'm more interested in like something that's purposefully meditative. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's um like it's not I mean, there is a lot of motion, like I said, in, in almost every piece. There is a gesture, you know, one one thing shooting from one side to the other or the other way around. And maybe it's color, you know, that, mm-hmm. that you achieve that with that sort of more serene overtone, Mhm. you know. Um, yeah, well, it's one of those things I think that you can't – it's like you, I sort of think that I feel like a channel sometimes for something, you know? Yeah, yeah. And like, and so it's whatever gets channeled through me doesn't end up it, – it ends up coming out feeling um, like you were saying something to be witnessed or like an unfolding, and there's not – necessarily uh, a heavy emotion although I do think of the shadow as my in my work 
the shadow is the undercurrent. It's the the unspoken darkness that's underneath yeah. things sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. so that's how I think of the shadow. Even though the work's pretty light and always colorful and beautiful, the shadow is like the little tiny peak at the dark side. Yeah, true. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's how I think of it. You know? Yeah. The moodiness. The one one thing that popped into my head is uh, for over the what we've been talking about the last few minutes was um, the word translation. Mhm. Yeah. And you know, like whether it's the rubbing and, and it's sort of a selective sort of uh, editing of a specific thing, which allows a lot of room for the viewer too, for, you know, as I, as, as I see it. Yeah, that's a great word. It's a totally great thing. And it, or like being like the um, translation, it's a specific thing. Yeah, it has a specific set of meanings and doing to it so i really yeah. like that idea yeah and now things I, are lost in translation or not like right yeah i mean it's up to i guess whoever's looking at it to think like oh well i want more or i want less or um you know i that's inevitable i guess with anyone looking at anything but yeah uh, yeah like sure. if, they, if they if they accept or or um the translation mhm and 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 that it's just like it's like i feel like i've been reading the tao te ching a little bit lately and oh. it's not so much like it's not it's not important that what book it is it's the fact that it was translated yeah you know like whether it's from german to english even something like that you know like it, and that's isn't that what we're doing <laughs> yeah oh completely oh it's completely that yeah, I completely understand what you're talking about. There, are, I think it's fascinating too how there are different words or thoughts in certain languages that completely don't exist in others. And yeah, then yeah. the idea of like when we're making, when we make objects with color and we make things and we arrange them and they're nonverbal and they're experiential and evocative. And then there's this, then we have to try to explain them using words. <laughs> yeah. And there's that, that funny, like, thing, because the language of color, for example, it's completely alive and totally vibrant, and it's nonverbal. So we have more play on words and with words as it relates to the work and what we've been talking about. I have these favorite duality words, which is to describe what I do too. So transient, permanent, natural, artificial, yeah. material, immaterial. So those are like things that I think I've been trying to kind of they're part of what I'm doing. They've been part of my concerns for a long time. And to close, Katie Stone shares an artist quote. One of my artist quotes that I love is um, the, a quote by John Cage, and it's, out of the work comes the work. Well, I want to thank you, Katie, for being on you're so welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me and giving me a chance to 
blab and dialogue. It was nice to have a conversation and take care. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. This has been Oddcast. I'm your host, Philip J. Mellon. Thanks for listening and keep the dialogue going. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me ask you this. Define abstract art. Oh, come on. Okay, here's a better one. What does this painting mean? <sighs> I'm getting nowhere with this. Forget it. <laughs> Outcast Home is A-H-T dot com. Thanks again. <laughs>